You know what? We're okay. We're not in a mirror. Well, no, cameras. I'm not looking at myself, though. And there is a mirror in this room, though. Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Keith Foster holding it down in San Diego, California. And you are Cassidy Robinson, recording from an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains. And today we are discussing the new Candyman film, the Candyman soft reboot sequel. That came out a few weeks ago, but it's now on demand. More people are able to see it. And uh, we will also be reviewing the original X-Files film from 1998. Yes, which we watched on Hulu, which is where you can watch all the seasons of the X-Files as well. Yes, you watched it on Hulu. I paid the $2.99 to watch it on fucking YouTube three months ago before it was available on hulu oh i was gonna say why but well i wanted i wanted to watch it when i was there seasonally right so which i'm probably gonna have to do the same thing with the new movie the 2008 movie i i believe it's x-files i want to believe um i think so so did yeah. you ever um i'm surprised you're not there already you you've been going through the x-files pretty quickly but you hadn't reached to the point where the new movie comes into the timeline or I is it out of I, timeline i don't even know if it's even canonical i believe i might be mistaken i thought it was after the series altogether so that's when i was going to watch it was mm-hmm. Uh, after I finish season nine. So I'm almost done with season eight. Uh, and then there's season nine. And that's the season that doesn't have David Duchovny or Gillian Anderson. Uh, and then they did the movie, I believe. The, the sequel movie. And then there is... They did like a, a little mini reboot, which is two seasons and they're, they're only like 10 episodes which is fucking perfect right I'm so excited for that was that supposed to be limited or did it just turn out that way because people weren't as stoked about it as they hoped they would be i'm not sure i'm sh- i will find out when i get there um, yeah i'm so close i'm so fucking close this last season has been a bit of a slog but mm-hmm. It's had some good moments, though. It's had some good stuff. Um, I think the next season is going to be the real struggle. Right. You're on season 11? Season 8. Season 8 of 11. Yeah. So, yeah, we'll get there. Well, we're going to talk about all about the uh, all about X-Files in the 90s. And... Um, yes, we are. Yeah, technically it's a film we've both seen. But yeah, so we'll we'll get into all of that uh, when we get there. But I did want to bring up this thing that I saw um, earlier on Twitter that I thought was sort of an interesting topic of discussion. So somebody on Twitter named Gretchen Felker Martin said, I truly have no idea why everyone is so cooler than thou about A24. 
St. Maud, The Witch, Uncut Gems, The Lighthouse, The Green Knight, Climax, solid stuff. Then a person quote tweeted, this person that I follow quote tweeted that and said, they're also just like a distributor. Sure, some of the marketing can be cringy, but that's pretty much all marketing. And they got to sell those movies. Okay. I, I'm confused. Like, what's the discussion here? It, so some people... From, There's, from what I'm get, gathering from this tweet, yes, is some people seem to actively avoid A24 because it's art house. Yes and no and no. I think what I think there's sort of like a meme in the air. It's just a thing that happens with anything. So as soon as something becomes so popular that the general public knows about it and mm-hmm. can identify it as such then there is a re- a reaction against it. And that's all we're seeing is that A24 has been, you know, king shit of Indie Mountain for the past, I don't know, four or so years. Mm-hmm. And because their name is all over the place and they, they really push that brand and the branding is on point and is doing mm-hmm. very, very well for them. Um, there is now sort of a... Uh, backlash to that, specifically online, of people being like, you know, what's the big deal? All their movies are the same. They, you know, it's all just a formula. Blah blah blah. Okay. Or, or, I'm, to or that. rather than rather than that, being like the idea of like I am sick of a twenty four as a thing. In the same way that like, um, you know, snooty film critics are sick of the Marvel Cinematic Universe as a thing. Yeah. Well. First of all, the Marvel Cinematic Universe has been around for, what, 20 fucking years at this point? 2008. 2008. So, 2018, 19, 20, 21. So, 13 years. That's a fucking long run. That's a solid run. And for the majority of that time, they have dominated the box office, right? Right. I get why critics, and I'm excluding us in this, because what the fuck are we doing here? Uh, (laughs) But... I get why critics, uh, especially who didn't necessarily grow up with these characters or whatever, as properties, whatever, don't have those personal attachments. I get why they might be like, okay, another fucking Marvel movie at this point. You know, right, it's right, been right. 13 years and they demand conversation. They are the biggest movies of the year most of the time. Right. So I get that. A24. Sure, yes, they are producing movies. Uh Uh-huh. And so what if they want their movies to have a vibe to them? If they want to have a feel? Right. It's not like they're trying to make this interconnected universe, which, I mean, there's not even that many. So, uh, not that long ago. I can't remember the year because I'm bad with that sort of thing. But a lot of movie studios have been really struggling in the last few years, right? A lot of right. smaller studios have been eaten up by bigger studios. Uh, yeah, and, you start to see more and more independents fall away. Exactly. Or, or sell off or, you know, be absorbed in something else or whatever. And that's why A24 is where they are. It's because a lot of the competition just isn't there anymore. Because there used well, to be so that, that's uh, the point at least I'd three make. or four major independents at, at, a, at a point in time. Annapurna was started around mm-hmm. the same time. That was um, Megan Ellison's 
uh, uh, company, she was pretty pretty competitive with A24. They were like the two kings. And then at so, the same well, time, so there was also the like making is, roadshow is, attractions. And, you know, that the Weinstein company, which is kind of like d- dissolved now. Exactly. So how many movie studios that have a vibe to them? How many have, uh, you know, like, oh, I kind of know what I'm getting when I go to, you know, there's Marvel, there's Bloomhouse. There's A24, and there's not that much else. Right? Somebody in uh, that somebody in that tweet thread also mentioned Pixar. Um, okay, sure, yeah, yeah. But, but so that's what I'm saying. Uh, uh, so there's, I don't think this is an A24 problem. I think I, this is an industry problem. What right? were the ones you mentioned again? What was that? What uh, was that list? Marvel, Marvel, so, uh, Marvel. Um, Which part of Bloom Disney? House. Yeah. Well, but but Marvel is different than Disney. I mean, yes, Disney owns them, and they might be even a little more formulaic, but they had the formula before the buyout. So, right. Marvel, Bloomhouse, A24, and, and Pixar. you threw in Pixar. Yeah, so... Right? Like, if you go to Universal movie, who the fuck knows? If you go to a Sony movie, you just know they're going to be cutting some fucking corner somewhere and it's going to be trash. Uh, <laughs> but they don't, you know, they don't have these, well, they don't have any kind of cohesive vision or whatever, which is fine. Yeah. They're giant studios. But to complain about a studio, an independent studio, because they want, you know, their movies to have a certain aesthetic like fuck all the way off i agree with you um and and also i think that their situation is slightly different because in the case of marvel in the case of pixar in the case of um whatever yeah they have massive shell shareholders no 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 i'm not even talking about that well and, and i mentioned this in the tweet thread that i was reading um specifically marvel and and Pixar, who are owned by Disney, under the umbrella of Disney, um, mm. they're kind of in-house and studios. Lucasfilm now, too. Lucasfilm as well, yeah. Um, they're in-house studios. So they, all of their producers, all of their writers, all of their directors yes. are working in-house. It's kind of a factory. It's actually very similar to the vertical integrated um, studio system of like the 1950s and before, like Golden Age yeah. style. Uh, the actors aren't contracted. Um, and theaters aren't contracted to the studios in the same way, but that's about the only difference now mm-hmm. um, with those studios. Now, with A24, that's a little bit different because they're an independent. So some of the stuff, they might lend money to a director to get something made. Um, they might not even lend them everything, just like a startup or whatever, or just like, mm-hmm. you know, some capital to get something off the ground. And then they have to find investors. And that's why when you go see an independent film, there's always like 16 title things before the actual <laughs> movie starts. Cause yeah. they've been begging at like everyone's door to get their $2 million movie made. Well, and, and that, um, that's. Yeah, I actually I want. And in some cases, it. they have zero input on the actual movie. They just go to festivals, and, and they say up. that looks like an A twenty four film. Let, mm-hmm. You know, here let us let us uh, pick this up for you, and oh, we'll we'll market the studios, shit out of it. Um, Bad Robot, they have a, a vibe, um, kind but of. They're, they're largely, also like not super active, other than the Mission Impossible movies. 
Uh, not as much anymore, but there was a know. moment, yeah. And um, Jordan Peele's production company, Monkey Paw, is coming up, but they've worked with yeah, stuff it's still like fledgling Blue House a lot. Yeah, yeah. So here's here's my point that I'm making. Fuck off. That is such elitist gatekeeping bullshit of like, ooh, we have to categorize every fucking thing. Like, if you don't like A24's vibe, like, if you saw an A24 movie and you were like, nah, that's boring, or whatever, sure, don't go see their movies, but get the fuck out of here. Like, you know what I mean? Uh, Yes, they're independent, they're indie movies, so they're gonna have a feel in that they don't feel like big fucking blockbusters, but Uncut Gems is a very different movie than The the Witch. Right. Which is, you know, a very different movie than Hereditary and Midsummer, which are also horror movies, but, like, right. other than the fact that, like, you can see that they might not have as big of budgets, they still... The horror comes from very different places. The scripts are very fucking different. Mm-hmm. Um, I did make the joke when I watched The Green Knight. I was like, well, that's about as A24 of a movie as it can get. But it was also right, a and joke. I th- and, and I don't think that people are, like, that upset about it. I don't think people are, like, picketing, you know, the the no, studios I mean, or anything not. like that being, like, you know, get rid of A24. Actually, I, the first I ever saw of this was sort of in the horror community because mm-hmm. I think there was this idea that, like – the elevated horror film, I'm putting that in quotations, um, mm. was kind of like sucking up all the air out of the room for a little while. And I think there sure. was a, I, I a mean, sort of a backlash. Ari Aster, I think. Well, sure. I mean, you know, at the same time, Robert Eggers and all of those guys were kind of coming up. Um, mm. And their brand was getting off the ground in a big way. And I think that there are some like horror enthusiasts who were also- really, who were really excited yeah, by the genre in general, um, mm-hmm. and have been following it forever, and they like the schlock, and they like, you know, they like a Rob Zombie movie as much as they like a a Polanski thriller or whatever. Sure. Um, but then here comes the new kid on the block, A24, and then the critics who bash all of their movies that they love are mm-hmm. talking about, like, oh, well, we love Hereditary and we love The Witch because they're smart people's horror f- films. I, I mean... And I think I, it's I, that I, sort of idea that that got people to be resentful at the beginning. I, I mean, I yes, I kind of understand that I from a certain perspective, but also you have to keep in mind the fact that, you know, something like The Lighthouse... Mm-hmm. Uh, was a critical darling did not prevent fucking 2018's Halloween from getting made. Halloween Kills comes out this year. You know what I mean? Like, like yes, uh, there is this like yeah. critical acclaim for that. But horror movies are always going. If if a horror movie hits right, it's always going to do banger at the box office, right? There's always kind of like the direct to streaming, direct to video yeah. stuff. But there's also always small budget horror movies that hit well and make a lot of fucking money. So that's, I think, also a dumb stance to take, right? Were they also pissed at Paranormal Activity? Because those movies kind of. I think whenever anything. Sure, sure. Yeah. I think whenever anything gets overexposed for like two or three years, 
there's always some sort of backlash coming from somewhere. I don't think that's abnormal at all. Um, and I liken it to this, right? So like in 1991 or whatever, like the Seattle grunge thing happens. Yeah. And it was this little underground thing nobody knew about until 91 when Nirvana blew up and Soundgarden blew up and whatever. And then all of a sudden, you know, if you follow those thousands of documentaries that's covered the subject, um, mm. all of a sudden everybody wants to be grunge and grunge is the, the new word. Nobody even says like alternative rock or punk or anything anymore. Everyone's Everything's grunge now and it's being sold in all the magazines and, you know – and it was yeah, all kind of cool, but now once, it's like, uh Well, yeah, I think once the brand becomes definable, right. uh, it, it starts to become the culture. And then the counterculture has to hate it. Right. And I think that people are more annoyed by the branding than they are of the actual movies themselves. I think that people are more annoyed by the idea of the branding that they have in their head right. than the actual branding, right? I saw well, the trailer. And I for think the, that well, a lot of people it's it's not like A24s have a movie voice guy that is like from the weird world of the witch. In this, well, I mean, you know they, I mean? They, they do have title cards in the trailers that'll usually say, sure, like, from they, the studio that brought like you, blah, 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 blah. Or, or, yeah, from the studio that brought you, right. but it's not, it's not like, get ready for another weird movie that's going to make you probably sexually uncomfortable and very anxious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it comes from a lot of different places, but, I mean, also, I think the people who are just now... You know, let's say younger people, people who are 25 under, who are very online, um, mm. and who want to get into this discourse for whatever reason. Um, maybe this is the first time they've ever noticed, a, like, a, sure. an indie art house, like, um, well, the, thing. Yeah. But I grew up with Miramax. I grew up with Focus Features. I grew up with Warner Independent. I grew up with, you know, all these things that have gone by the wayside. I and this, the, to me, A24 is just the new one. And in four years from now, there'll be another one. I, I think the difference is Miramax came out in, you know, what was it, late 80s, early 90s? Yeah. And and A24 is the big shit indie king. Yeah. For a little while, it was DreamWorks. DreamWorks uh, was kind of like, was doing that in like the late 90s, early 2000s. So every, my, my point is Lionsgate now, started out as prestige before they just started making schlock. Yeah. But my, my point is now... A24 is hitting big when anything and everything can become a meme. It's a meme. Right, yeah. So it it might be a thing that happens and then somebody catches it and they're like, oh, I'm going to do a weird meme with the Robert Pattinson standing in the kitchen in front of an A24 logo. And bingo, bango, everybody gets that now. You know, right, and whereas it, they're just if memes were a thing in 1994, you would have had Kevin Smith memes, Miramax memes, whatever. You get my point. I know I what you're saying. Point, I th- I think I think what I think I what get, it is is that yeah, people people don't even necessarily have opinions. They just they just repeat things they see online over and over yeah, again. Yeah, it's just it's so recognizable. I yeah. I think that's the thing of it. It's not. It's just an easy joke. It's become kind of low-hanging fruit. So, right, right, right. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah. Because I, it's overexposed. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's all I wanted to, to talk about there. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that is interesting. Um, but in general, I've liked most of the A24 movies I've seen. Yeah. So. Just as I, you know, there was a point in time when Miramax was really cool. There's a point in time when uh, um, Focus Features was really cool before they started doing bad rom-coms. Um, there, yeah, yeah there are no and in four years, there's going to be a new one. Yeah, probably. Um, you know, there was relative media before Ryan Kavanaugh like sank that into the earth. Yeah, he went bankrupt big time. Um, okay, so let's go ahead and start talking about Candyman, and that's the last time I'm going to say his name. <laughs> I was going to say, I remember, uh, I do also have a vivid memory of Candyman uh, in uh, grade school. I had not seen the movie, but I very uh, vividly remember you telling me to go into the bathroom to do the thing. and say his name five times in front of a mirror. And I did it. And it bothered me. Bad uh, idea. Yeah. For like <laughs> a week or so. After, I thought I was going to die every time I went into a bathroom. <laughs> That's so, funny. fuck you, Cassidy. I th- I had um, the sequel, Candyman Farewell to the Flesh, taped off of TV. Mm. Um, and I, I'd seen that before I had seen the original, like, by a good while. Like, I think I didn't see the original till like, I don't know, 10 years ago or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'd watched Farewell to the Flesh. You know, a few times when I had it on VHS as a, as like a, you know, kid or whatever, however old I was, taped off of like USA or something. Um, but yeah, fun fact, Candyman Farewell to the Flesh is directed by... So that's four. <laughs> directed by Bill Condon, who would later go on to do Dreamgirls and Kinsey and a couple uh, Twilight movies. I don't think I've ever seen Farewell to the Flesh. I, I don't know. You might have made me watch it. I uh, liked it at the time. I don't know if it holds up, but it probably does. I mean, you know, I think the movie he did right after that was um, Gods and Monsters, which is a really good movie. It also has a horror connection. There is also uh, a Candyman 3 that I had no idea. Existed. That was a direct-to-DVD direct situation. I, uh, that came out, like, I think there's a good gap between 2 and 3. You know what? We're okay. We're not in a mirror. Well, no, cameras. Like, ooh. I'm not looking at myself, though. And there is a mirror in this room, though. So. <laughs> okay. Maybe we should cool it on so, the CM. In uh, the 2021 uh, sequel soft reboot of Candyman. Okay. Well, we'll we'll get to this in more detail. Yes. This is a sequel. This is a very explicitly a sequel. In fact, compared to most reboots, uh, like... I think a lot of reboots and stuff, they tow a pretty fine line of like, you know, you might not have had to see the original to appreciate this one. I think this one, you definitely need to see the original. This is a sequel. This is Candyman 2. Okay, we might disagree on that later. But uh, this is, uh, I would say it's it's very similar to what they tried to do with, David Gord Green did with um, Halloween. The Halloween reboot. I disagree with that. Because basically what they're saying is like, 
Farewell to the Flesh and the direct to DVD thing, all the other stuff with Tony Todd didn't happen. We're just picking up right where we left off from the last one, but we are going in real time into the future. Yes. So we We're are going in, in real time into the future. I'm just saying I think this one has story connections that are more that direct. Are a lot more explicit and and directly connected to the first one to the point where I was like I don't know if someone who hasn't seen the first one will appreciate this. That might be true. That might be true. But so that is not a re- I mean yes, they're trying to revitalize it as a franchise or an IP, but it is specifically a sequel in that it is dependent on the original. The Halloween 2018 I think you could see that without ever having seen a Michael Myers movie before, and you'd be fine. Yeah, but I think that might be more because of the nature of their stories. This film is uh, directed by Nia DaCosta, who also co-wrote it. Uh, It's produced by Jordan Peele for his Monkey Paw Productions. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, Wynn Rosenfield also is a co-writer on here, uh, as well as Jordan Peele. And it takes place in Chicago, as did the first film. Uh, the, the original film. Um, and it follows a young artist played by Yaya Abdul Mateen II. Um, he's goes by the name Anthony here. And he has a significant other played by Tiona Paris named Brianna. And she sort of helps him with his art dealing and stuff like that. She's also sort of supporting him. Um, she's more the breadwinner of the situation. But they're well-to-do. They live in a science fictionally large uh chicago apartment and yeah when the when the <laughs> brother is like complaining about the apartment i was just like okay yeah <laughs> i mean it has like ceilings so tall you don't even see it in frame yeah you know it, it it sort of follows him on this journey of trying um get in touch with a new artistic passion he has a, a new show coming up and he hears the legend of the candy man and what sort of changes from the 1992 film um, to this one is that the origin story for this urban legend is seemingly different. And what um, what we're, we sort of learn through the film is that different generations have a different version of this story based upon yeah, like, these different... Like everybody kind of has a their own candy man. Everybody has a different candy man. Right. It, it kind of evolves with the eras or with the times. And, uh, you know, what we hear now is the story of in the seventies, uh, a homeless man with, with a hook. Um, but that's more kind of like a, a medical hook, not a, yeah, like, like a prosthetic. Uh, yeah. Prosthetic who was living in Cabrini green, a homeless man kind of hiding in the walls of Cabrini green, Green, who was um, unfairly arrested by the police and killed on sight because people in the neighborhood thought that he was trying to give kids razor blade candy. And then it turns out that it was that was not the case because the razor blade candy still showed up after he died. Um, but because of this injustice, he, it leaves some sort of uh, specter ghost. And of course, if you say the name in the mirror five times, he's supposed to appear. Um and this becomes a new inspiration for Anthony's art, and he sort of taps into what the film, um, the original 1992 film, taps into. Helen, who was a 
grad student who wanted to write about urban legends, you know, goes into Cabrini Green, the projects there, and begins to sort of pick up pieces of this culture that she doesn't really belong to and sort of introduce it to white educated society. Now, this movie sort of comments on that with this Anthony character who is living in a better part of Chicago than he grew up in and a better part than the Candyman is supposedly from. Uh, Cabrini Green doesn't even exist anymore. Um, the, the, uh, those projects were torn down a long time ago and has been gentrified since then. But and he, he tries to sort of make his art about that. So it's sort of an interesting movie because it's, it's, it's in, in one way, it's a movie about, it's a horror sequel. It's, I mean, it, it's trying to do the stuff that the original did and that you have this ghost that comes from mirrors and kills people. Um, but there's, it, it's also sort of commenting on the discourse around the subtext of that film that may or may have not been intentional in 1992, but it's since been sort of reevaluated through the decades. So there's a, there's a lot of like meta um, analysis of the mythology. And interesting to me is by this point, we're getting about two or three more steps removed from the original Clive Barker short story that the, uh, original film was based on, which actually takes place in England and didn't even have a racial component to it. It was more about class um, in the Clive Barker short story. And in fact, there's a character in this film named Clive who gets killed uh, early on. And there's a line in the movie says like uh, another artist uh, says something to the effect of like, you know, Clive had to die so I could emerge. And it's like, okay, well, I mean, that's yeah. Well, Okay, so and I mean, there's also a scene where uh, characters reading the Clive Barker book. So, so that gets to kind of my my general, generally my biggest beef with this movie. Um, now, also, uh, I just want to say up front that I actually I enjoyed this movie. I thought it was uh, I thought it was a good movie, but I I still there was some stuff that left me feeling a little like. I wish they hadn't done that because I think it could have been really good. And instead it's just kind of good. Um, I, I think personally, this movie has a hard time living on its own um, because I think it's so connected to the first one, uh, uh, especially the climax. I don't know how much of a payoff that would have to someone who hasn't seen the original. And sure. Uh, this movie is so aware of its sources and constantly referencing them uh, that that it is it can be very on the nose sometimes. Uh, like that thing you said about Clive. I, there's also like a weird moment when I think it was Clive uh, is like who plays trying- an, art, an art critic, by the way, and it's it's like it's the archetypical critic that's written by somebody who hates critics. Yeah, it's such a character of of critics. Um, yeah. But there's literally a part where he's like trying to unbuckle his belt and he's like, must go faster, must go faster. Oh, that was just weird. That well, That's really weird. That that and was they, out of nowhere. That's that's a that was such a clear homage to Jurassic Park for no reason. No reason. That and 
Yeah, so it was very weird. I um, thought you were going to say when he was, when this critic character is like criticizing his his mirror, his like bathroom mirror. No, that's whatever. Installation. That's, no. That's and he typical. like basic. Well, this was a problem for me. I, and not just because he like this critic character makes like the critic from Ratatouille look like a realistic grounded human being. But, yeah. but more so because uh, the, what I see the screenplay does a lot is it uses critical discourse about the movies that have been written, you know, dissertations and stuff that have been written over, since 1992 to now. Yeah. Like, you know, this kind of bell hooksian sort of like um, – deconstruction of what that movie meant and what it means to people of color and how it's problematic and how it was progressive at the time and blah, 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 blah. And it takes all of these like big like paragraphs of contemplation and sticks it into characters' mouths in very unnatural ways. Yeah. I So that's kind of what I'm getting to. I, my biggest problem with the movie is it's too self-aware that it's a movie for its own good. Yes. A and that draws me out of it and i think this i think this story the story this movie wants to tell is interesting and the mythology of Candyman is so cool and is so ripe especially for you know the social discourse that's going on right now the way uh you know black americans are treated sure that all of that stuff works for me really well what didn't work for me was all the stuff that's like so self-aware that I'm like, just live in this story. You don't need to keep drawing me out and pointing at the fact that it's What's a story. This is this is a thing in comedy. This is a thing improv. Yeah. This is a thing in any type of narrative storytelling. What is the rule? Uh, you commit. You commit to your own reality. You commit to, yeah. More, once you more, draw attention. more basic than that. I, I don't know. I feel like this is a quiz. <laughs> what, what do you get? You at? say this all the time. Show, don't tell. Oh, yes. Show, yeah. don't tell. There's there's plenty of times in this movie when the movie is trying to get ahead of itself with the thematics. And this is my problem with it overall. Now, I, I liked the movie for what it is. I think it's interesting. But my overall review of it is uh, thinky face emoji with the, with the hand on the chin. That's kind of my feeling about the movie yeah that's is as hmm, okay okay but there's so many times in the movie where it's trying to get ahead of itself it's trying to get ahead of the discourse it, it wants to dive into that stuff because there's been so much written about it and there's exactly. so much cultural context that can you know be a live wire to touch that I feel like every all these writers involved and 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 the when they conceived of this they got overwhelmed by the possibilities of this story and instead of kind of you know killing their babies and picking a story to tell they try to include as much of their ideas as possible to the point well, where you have like three different movies fighting for dominance throughout the narrative. Yeah. And and I think a perfect example of this um is so there's this scene where this like girl goes to the art show and yes. like sees the piece and like takes a piece of paper that says like, you know, say Candyman five times in front of a mirror. And then way later in the movie, she like does that with some girls in high school. But the problem is the movie never makes this connection direct. It's like way later 
to where it doesn't make sense narratively. And then uh, this other character mentions something about how, you know, like, uh, people don't care until it's like some white girls that start dying. Sure. And I feel like the movie was trying to make that connection, uh, you know, but it, it never quite clicked. And and that's how I feel about, like, again, I, I liked this movie. Um, but There's things to like about it, and I, want, I will get into that, but... Uh, it's also, in a weird way, and I don't know, maybe you disagree with me on this, uh, it also feels a little bloodless. Yes. So well, there's I- there's a high, I mean, there a bunch of people die, a bunch of people get murdered by the ghost, but most of the murders are off camera, mm-hmm. and, and, okay, and this might be reaching here and you don't have to read into this too much okay but there is also this thing where it's like only white characters die and so at a point i start to feel like there isn't a real threat to the main characters you know what i mean at a point i start to feel like well it uh, there is danger to the main characters, but it manifests differently than it does in the original film, and that's and that's fine. I right, do, and I think I think it's mostly due to because again, this is a movie in which the themes are driving the narrative, not the other way around. So yeah. here in this situation, the the theme that they're trying to go on here, with specifically with the main characters, is how. You know, black culture has in has internalized the critique, you know, the white supremacist critique of violence and has essentially internalized that within their own culture, you know, putting themselves into their own stereotype. And that I think that is, you know, it, it sort of plays out as this transformation thing. Um, but again, it's it's a little heavy-handed and it it actually that might be as far as thematically that might be the most compelling arc. Yeah, I thought that was in that was... in the movie, um, and and probably the most subtle. But let's go back to that bathroom scene because I think that's important. Um, there's this random scene where a bunch of teenagers uh, get killed in a bathroom, and it feels out of nowhere, and it feels like it's from a different movie because it's one of the only scenes in the movie that I felt. Where the movie, like, I was watching it and I was like, why is this happening? Like, what is this connected to? Like, yeah. And then they don't refer to it again after. Like, there's no follow-up to it. And so I, I, I eventually realized, like, oh, it's because somebody somewhere said, you guys, you are making a horror film, right? You got to have totally. a horror scene somewhere in your horror film. Yeah, and like they have a couple but they're they very few they're and far pretty few and far and same with the first the first movie i mean is even though it is when it does the horror stuff it goes for it but that movie like holds tension the whole time and there's a, there's a mystery element to it there's a like kind of a there's a gothic element that i feel is very gone now yeah um you know there's a romantic uh kind of um you know, that Clive Barker thing that just mm-hmm. isn't in this movie. Um, uh, because Clive Barker, like, generally, you know, his whole thing is, like, he he makes movies about freaks and demons and, and torture, but you're supposed to be drawn to it. You're supposed to be romanced into this world of, of the other. 
right? And 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 plenty has been written about you know uh, queer readings of Clive Barker texts, and I think and, and all of that's kind of gone. All that, that like gothic romance element is kind of stripped out of here and replaced with more of this kind of social critique stuff, um, that kind of bell hooksian stuff that I was talking about. But I think in that. Um, it's a, it becomes a horror film that's sort of embarrassed to be a horror film. Exactly. And, and that's what I mean where it's like, I feel like there are certain characters that the movie is so aware of, like the genre tropes of horror movies. Yeah. That is like, well, these characters are kind of untouchable because we're trying to break those tropes, right? Right. So, and, and I, I think that's fine, but it's just, you know, I, I, uh, I applaud them for having two openly gay main characters who don't have to die. I applaud them for having, you know, a black cast lead that doesn't have to die. But they draw such attention to that that it's like, okay, well, let's focus on being a movie first, and then we can notice that stuff later. Right. I think I think if the movie hadn't been, you know, openly pontificating so much throughout the text... Exactly. And, and it, it draws and, attention to all of these things, right? And and just build on tension and build on, you know, let let that let the themes come from the narrative rather well, than the other way around. Exactly. Um, and 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 that's the the other thing is you you talked about the first one how it is you know dancing with tension the whole movie and stuff, right? And this one, and it's also not afraid to get schlocky when it wants to get schlocky, yeah, and that's kind of what makes it unique and interesting is that it's like. It's a slasher film that's supernatural that's like making allusions to to like universal gothic horror but also is has kind of artsy and has this Philip Glass score like it is a weird fucking cool movie. Yeah. And weirdly well, I, progressive for its time but also in retrospect maybe kind of problematic. Totally. Uh yeah, I I yeah, I feel like this one like you said it's it's just so aware of these issues that it never just like lets its hair down to be a to, horror movie. To be its and, own and thing. And that's yeah. what I needed it to be. Now, the things um, I did like about it. I really yeah. like the depiction of the Candyman when he does appear. I yes, I, I, I love I, I, I actually love liked the, the expanding of the lore. I loved all of that. I yeah. loved the building of the lore. I loved the slow transformation into Candyman. It has like right. these weird elements of body horror that you don't see a lot in, in mainstream horror anymore. Right. Um, At least not in this kind of like supernatural way. Um, I liked, yeah, I liked that, all of that stuff. I thought that the mystery element when it's, you know, not being like suffocated out of the film by, by the messaging um, is interesting. I like like when, when we're going and like interviewing the people who used to live at Cabrini green. In fact, uh, Coleman Domingo, um, who plays William Burke, uh, 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 an, uh, an older man who was from Cabrini before it was torn down. He's great in everything. Um, he was in uh, uh, Beale street. I don't know if I you know. saw that, but he was mm -hmm. very, very good in that. He's a brilliant actor. He was uh, one of the best parts of The Butler. He's very good in this. I, I don't super love like the conclusion of that character. I thought like, he was a little shoehorned in towards the towards the end and the climax. And the climax itself is kind of messy. There's issues there. Yeah. Well, but so again, again, going back to the build of the first one, this one isn't really building. And then there's just kind of this 
insane climax kind of out of nowhere yeah yeah and, yeah. and i th- i feel like they needed to ratchet that tension up a, a, li- a little bit more and 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 come to come to it kind of more naturally i think again this is one of those things where i felt like there was fights in the writing room and it ended up with a messy conclusion but you know what though i'm gonna give this movie a little bit of credit it's a pretty tight 90 it is a well i wouldn't call it a tight 90 it's it's a loose 90 <laughs> I, I mean the runtime. The runtime is, is not. The runtime is is not um, excruciating. It's it ninety no. minutes. It's like yes. ninety one minutes or something. It's 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 on it's on that cusp. Um, but it it kind of it's a clunky it's a clunky journey getting there. Um, yeah. and not necessarily in a bad way. I actually think this movie's super interesting. I think people who do like the original should see it. I think it is great for conversation. I I, um, I, I absolutely agree with that. I just don't think too. it's like a great horror movie, ultimately. Yeah, and that's kind of my problem with it as well. I think it's more interesting than it is scary. Yeah. And I, I would have liked him to tone down... I mean, it feels like a thesis paper to come to life. Yeah. Yeah, and, and exactly. Uh, so I'm going to give this movie... I'm going to give it a solid B. Okay. I'm going to give it a B minus. I'm going to give it a B minus, um, but I, I'm not saying don't see it. I think visually there's interesting stuff going on with mirror, oh, well, that, you know, mirrors and the cinematography is very cool. The cinematography is the, very the, different. All of the, uh, I think the set design, like, yeah. just the look of this movie I think is great. Yeah. It's, again, stylistically very different from from the original um, which was going for more of a classical approach. This one, either you get these very tight um, close-ups, like almost like Jonathan Demi style close-ups in the movie. Um, yeah, and also just like these really weird uh, angles, but they they work somehow. Yeah, it, um, when when she starts to like get playful with the lighting, when she starts to get, I feel like she you're watching her sort of like develop her skills as a genre filmmaker mm-hmm. in real time. Like you're watching her sort of learn on the job. And I feel like if she did more horror films after this, she'd probably do them better than this, this go around. I mean, it, it also could have been up to the editing, you know, maybe there was way more horror and they would like, yeah, maybe they cut it down to 90 from something else. I mean, I would guess very much so, but yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, it's 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 kind of a head scratcher, but I I do encourage people see it, and I think it's worth seeing. It's it's quality. It's just yeah. not, um, you know, a necessarily a sturdy film. Yeah, I I agree with that. I I did really enjoy it though, but mm-hmm. I also, yeah, I do wonder how much it it relies on the original um, as as its own thing. I also. One thing I'm going to say, this is very nitpicky. It might be a little spoilery, so if you haven't seen it yet, fair warning. I did want a little bit more Tony Todd. Well, I do think in some deg- in some ways you do feel his absence. But I yeah, don't think that... I, I don't think that I, that's necessarily because he's not in it, but I think it's... No, but I, I loved the... I did really like the lore, and I liked the way right. it evolved the mythology... I just want I think they should have got there a little bit quicker and so that we could have seen the full Candyman in all of its glory sure a little bit sooner but I think to just I think the what we're feeling even more so than the lack of Tony Todd is we're feeling like 
this movie's complete stripping away of that gothic horror element. And that's what Tony yeah. Todd br- brought. He yeah, was bringing like, Dracula. Yeah. He's bringing the, you know, the, uh, the uh, Phantom of the Opera to what he's doing. And this Fair. is not that take. Fair. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. Um, okay. So- I also think story-wise, it connects to the original in a really cool way that I did not see coming. Right. Yeah. I mean, in in some ways, to me, this movie feels like, like almost extended decades later when people wrote their own versions of like hp lovecraft lore <laughs> yeah you know yeah. and they like so they sold those like anthology well, books and hp lovecraft was just doing his version of edgar Allan about Poe. edgar Allan poe yeah uh, but it, that's what it kind of feels like to me it's, it's almost like like this feels almost more like yeah like supplemental yeah th- there is something about the movie that feels sort of student film sort of supplemental okay Okay. Uh, are you ready to move on? Let's move. Let's move on to X-Files, Bring Me the Light. What is it called? <laughs> uh, the X-Files, Fight the Future. Fight the I Future. I think that's one of those cases where the subtitle was like tagged on later. Yeah, nobody actually calls it that. Um, from 1998, and I will let you describe what is the plot. Try not to talk about the show too much in the synopsis. I'll. I'll What's happening I'll, in this feature film? Okay, first of all, I also saw this, you know, earlier in the summer, but there is evidence for extraterrestrial life on Earth, and uh, uh, Mulder investigates it. (laughs) Yeah? I don't fucking know. I've watched so much X-Files this year, (laughs) this was the worst, this was the worst one for me to set up. Here's the thing. All X-Files is the same. It's all fundamentally an alien. Uh, Aliens are on Earth, and there is a conspiracy by unnamed shadowy figures to cover up this truth. Some sort of deep state. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And Mulder is like the sole Knight Templar in his quest, uh, dragging Scully along as the, the, you know, the the non-believer. Um, who he has to convert to, to, to this. And, you know, through the movie, they c- c- specifically, it's specifically, it's the exact same as every episode, Cassidy. Specifically, this conspiracy, uh, has to do with, um, a virus. And this is why I thought you wanted to talk about this, because there's a lot of stuff that is kind of like, Noteworthy um, in the I, in the uh, here's the thing it's all blurring together and the virus shit was in the show this was your homework I know <laughs> and you didn't do it um so yeah so, yes, so specifically there's ago. this alien virus that's been uh, uncovered by this shadow organization and there's you know only a few like conspiracy cranks who have theorized about this and are able to uncover it and it gets tied into this like terrorist um plot to blow up a building and maybe they were blowing it up to hide these bodies that were infected by this virus and maybe not that's what they go to austin texas to figure out and it ends up they getting dragged into this virus cover-up uh, that has to do with bees and corn and Ala- and uh, Antarctica and, you know, um, Martin Landau is Alex Jones and, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, this movie, I think, is real weird. I think this kind of what you exactly what you shouldn't do when adapting a movie or a TV show to a movie. Uh-huh. So the reason a lot of this stuff is kind of muddled together in my head is, like I said, a lot of this comes from the show. I think too much of this comes from the show. And so Notoriously, the X-Files show, uh, has these sort of longer, uh, this longer story, which is referred to as mythology episodes. And then there's the fun episodes called the Monster of the Week episodes that have nothing to do with this blown out conspiracy. Yeah, it just had to do with there in some small town, there's a Bigfoot or something. Yeah. Yeah. And so... Part of the problem, I think, with this movie is it tries to build up these this ongoing story that's been going on throughout the TV show forever without any real resolution to any of it. Uh, and that's, I think, the frustrating thing about it as a show is they, when it was first sort of starting, it was just kind of like uh, uh, CSI, but with weird shit. So it's very procedural. Um, and then somewhere along the way, it was like people got into that mythology. People got into, you know, the the longer arc, and they did what network TV going to do, and they're going to stretch it out. So this movie specifically takes place between the fifth and the sixth season, which the fifth season is kind of a weird ending for a movie to pick up on. The X-Files, uh, most of the files get burnt down. The X-Files are like officially closed. And that's where this movie starts, is Mulder and Scully are just... The department that was open specifically so that Mulder could go chase wild geese while the FBI do their real work. Yeah, and and the whole idea, you know, is there's this subplot where he's, like, searching for his sister uh, and all, all that stuff. But yeah, so specifically this movie is kind of an extended pilot, or not pilot, but like season premiere for season six so it's trying to take all of this mythology all this dense shit uh that's very cloak and dagger and sometimes hard to follow anyway and it's also trying to like hey watch our show in the fall because then we're gonna get real resolution to some of these stories spoilers you never fucking do (laughs) i'm on season eight you never (laughs) learn the truth the truth is not out there well, I think the truth is out there because, um, I mean, the whole idea that the, you know, there's supposed to be some reasonable doubt enough to where uh, Scully as a character could exist is absurd. Um, yeah, that, there's there's this thing where, like, she's always like, well, I did see something. <laughs> and Mulder's like, come on. <laughs> he had black fucking eyeballs. He was like... G- Goo was coming out of his mouth. There's a primordial beast. You were hidden in a fucking spaceship. But of course, <laughs> she's like knocked out during all of that. Right. So. She's always like, yeah, yeah. They obscure her vision or something for whenever some giant thing of evidence appears. Um, so I, I think the key to and, and why I thought this might be kind of interesting to talk about. And I'll get your thoughts on this in a second, because I'm just kind of ranting about X-Files uh, in general right now. Uh-huh. I I think, again, I think this movie's interesting because I think it is kind of the exact wrong thing to do with a, a TV-to-movie adaptation. I think the correct thing to do 
is let the movies be their own thing, right? Like Star Trek, uh, you know, had a very successful run on TV, and then it transitioned to a movie. Nobody liked the first one. Everybody liked, you know, it made enough money to get a second one. But it was its own thing. Like, we have all the cast and characters and stuff, but we're going to let this be a movie. And but in the me, case movie, of in the case of Star Trek, the mm-hmm. show had ended. Exactly. You know, there was a lot three seasons of the original, maybe four seasons of the original Star Trek. Then there yes. was a good gap of time before the first Star Trek movie, which is then, kind of a response to Star Wars. Or, but what I mean to say is like there there was. A, a built-in clean slate because the show was over. They weren't doing it between seasons or also now when you get uh, into uh, like Star Trek generations where they're between where they try to bridge the two uh, shows, then that's maybe more similar. I think think also similarly part of the problem is X-Files is specifically a paranormal mystery show. And so much right. There's a noir element to it. It, there's, There's a procedural element to it. Um, and, and so much of it, yeah, is built on this conspiracy and this this whole, like, overarching arc of, like, finding the truth. Right. Where I think this movie would have been, I don't know, I mean, I guess it was successful enough, uh, but I think might have been more successful if it had, you know, kind of been a little bit more of a standalone adventure. Like, you can have some of that stuff, mm-hmm. but give it some of its own legs as well i i i feel like it's frustrating how much this movie relies on the show and and i think that's why it gets so muddy to me uh and again uh you know similar we've seen like you said uh like mission impossible right another great tv show to movie franchise but there was like decades in between right that's more of an adaptation yeah and i think you know Maybe that, I don't know. It would have been hard to do X-Files as like an adaptation where the two cast are still in their prime, but I I think it just needed to be its own thing. It didn't need to connect to the show so much because I feel like this whole- When you were talking about like, you know, the ARC episodes versus the Monster of the Week episodes, it would have been smarter Mm -hmm. to do more of a Monster of the Week movie, you know, kind of a standalone adventure- it, yeah, and, and rather than tying it into the overall conspiracy stuff. Well, exactly. And I, I think, you know, the monster still could have been an alien, you know, because I, I do think that has always been like the thing for X-Files yeah. is, is they try to do science fiction, but it's, they also try to make the monsters as plausible as possible, which sometimes gets exhausting. Sometimes it's like, some I just want a fucking werewolf to be a werewolf. <laughs> um, we don't always need to explain it, but... um. But yeah, I think the fact that they were trying to pay off all these TV show story arcs, because uh, like there are characters from the, sh- you know, like some of those old uh, white conspiracy guys, mm-hmm. like get killed off in the movie. And I'm, I just don't care. Uh, yeah, because I don't know. I, I feel like this movie has a hard time being its own thing. I, I'll say this as somebody who hasn't seen that much of the show. I've seen a smattering of episodes over mm-hmm. the decades when it was on, but I was never like a weekly watcher kind of thing. Um, but I knew it well enough to kind of get the cultural references. 
And and I'd seen the original movie when it came out because I just went and rented shit. And it just happened to be the shit I rented that weekend. I think it stands on its own better than you would think, given what it's trying to do. I Because I, I didn't – there was no point in the movie where I was like, I don't know why they're doing this right now. Like, I mean, as a story, okay, you know, I could pick up like – you know, the inciting incident leads to this, which leads to yeah, I mean, Mulder yeah, going does, here. They're trying to find it, this. And there is a... I, I do agree with you. It I, does have its own... It has an, open, an open-ended an open ending, but it still has a conclusion of sorts. So, I mean, it it is basically a long X-Files episode. But mm-hmm. I do think that it is definitely cinematic. I think that you can... I mean, it looks a whole well, lot it, better than the show. So yeah, that is one thing that definitely <clears throat> separates the budget is the- pretty big. Um, the and they, the- they film it to be a movie, right? You know, like and the quality of-, of acting and everything. Uh, there's there's a there's an aspect of it that I appreciate that sort of doesn't exist anymore. Um, mm-hmm. Of this idea of kind of like adult science fiction, you know, like it, it, it's 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 made for sort of a grown audience, but it is dealing well, okay. in pulp. It's dealing. In- I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because yes, I, I do agree with you. Yeah, but it can also be really fucking snobby about that, and as evidenced by the uh, Independence Day poster. That yeah, when he's Mulder peeing on the Independence on. Day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that that was kind of a jab. That was a yeah, and of it course, was, and but like, it was fun. And 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 you know, on any given day, I'd much rather watch the first Independence Day and Men in Black over this movie, but. But I think it's okay. I actually don't think it's that bad. I think I um the the only things I mean, that really bothered me about it was the dialogue is kind of stilted and hmm. like good lord, I don't know if this is a thing in the show but it was definitely a thing in the movie. Like have there ever been two lead characters in a movie who address each other by their names more than Mulder and Scully? <laughs> oh my god, it gets even crazier. Uh once they introduce Agent Doggett, he literally <sighs> refers to them as Agent Mulder, Agent Scully. They refer to each other. Like, you, these are people who work together seemingly every day. They know each other very well. You know, within this podcast, how often do I – it'd be like if every single time I started a sentence with you, I said, Keith, the reason I love this movie is because – and then you say, Cassidy, yeah. the reason I disagree with you is because – like that's how stilted that, it was sometimes. No, that it's is like, definitely a thing. At the I, very least, I like address each it. other by your first names – or if you're going to do that, only do it if, like, they're doing it in jest, like, you know, I'm pretending to be official with or you right now. Or maybe just save it for, like, emotional beats, like, you know? Well, at the first couple scenes, I was like, they're just doing this because, like, not everyone watched the show, so they got to kind of, like, learn the names, blah, blah, blah. And then it kept happening, and it kept happening, and it kept happening. Like, Jesus Christ, nobody talks like this. That but is definitely. I did enjoy uh, Martin Landau's little like I, I called him Alex Jones in this, but like yeah, like who's the guy who used to do? He's not Al- no, he's not Alex Jones because Alex Jones is a fucking crazy asshole who's doing it for publicity. He's a whistleblower. He's like he's like deep throat. He's trying to no, but okay. Here's the thing: if Alex Jones was actually saying anything that was true, Martin Landau was right. <laughs> here's the deal. Um... So this takes pl- – I, I say Alex Jones because that's the cultural reference that people know. But prior He's a to him – conspiracy theorist. Yes. Prior to him, there was a kind of this whole world – remember that show Coast to Coast, the radio yeah. show? It's still a thing. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. Art 
Bell? What was his name? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think it was Art Bell. Um, and there was a guy that took off after he died. Uh, it, that still has it going on. But there was that. And then there was like online forums. And there was like, you know, that world of like the black helicopters and, and the New World Order and all that stuff. Like conspiracy stuff that was, that was sort of like hobby for post-war boomers who just wanted to kind of live action role play and make the world more interesting than it really was. Um, yeah. And then in the, when YouTube hit and Alex Jones happened and then actual like politicians learned to weaponize that and, you know, turn it into a funnel into fascism. That's when things got bad. But there was a point in time when all this kind of stuff was sort of like fun to talk about, even if you didn't believe it. But yeah, there was a point in time when so Martin Landau plays one of these kind of Art Bell types who writes these books and stuff. And the movie, um, I don't think explicitly says he's a whistleblower. I think he is supposed to be seen as like a a, a fringe crank, but he just yeah, happens to know what's going on. It's like the whole thing of like in Men in Black, like the comedic version of this is when they grab the National Enquirer because they're more. Yeah, yeah, they're more reliable than the actual newspapers. Like no, it's the yeah, same thing. I know. And again, it's that is also a reoccurring theme within the <laughs> show. Is like they get information from somebody, but then they're that somebody is discredited for reasons. So it's like, okay, are they actually giving you real information, or is it all a setup? Right. Yeah. And people is- are you know getting whacked left and right. And oh, that's another thing that I thought was kind of like like the name thing is like how Mulder can narrowly escape death a thousand times throughout the movie. <laughs> well, that's t- I mean, that's TV, that's movies. Right. But I mean, it, I, yeah. In just within this one movie, it's like every scene ends, ends with him. Like, you know, having to switch clothes with somebody to get out of a situation or like, you know, avoiding a giant explosion or an implosion or something. It was, it kind of got funny. But, um, but yeah, like ultimately I thought it was, it was vaguely entertaining, a little dry. Um, but I, as far as like science fiction, horror ish, I guess espionage shit, I thought that it, on a genre level, it basically works. Um, yeah, but I wouldn't necessarily call it all that much fun either. Like it just kind of is. I, I, so I guess to me, like, if if somebody's going to revisit X-Files, right? Yeah. Nobody's going to do what I'm doing, where they're going to rewatch the series and watch all of the... I actually know... I follow, well, you, obviously, on Twitter. I'm also following somebody else who's doing it as well. Well, tell them to join in my hashtag, even though... Sports- I don't know if you know um, Paul Williams, not the, the guy who did the music for the Muppets and Phantom of the Paradise, but he 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 does cover art for 2000 AD, and he lives in England. Oh, um, he's doing an X Files rewatch, and uh, he's been talking about it as well. I know um, the girl who played Matilda also on Twitter was talking about Mara Wilson. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so yeah, overall, I think this movie's fine. Uh, I think it should have. If it wanted to be so connected to the show, I think they should have paid some of that off a little bit more. Ultimately, I think it should have just been more of its own thing. Uh, it, I think it's fine, but I do think it's a little bit frustrating. If 
I th- and maybe it's e- maybe it's more so if you're an X Files fan because you were expecting some kind of payoff or whatever. Mm, maybe. And it ultimately just kind of goes in a circle. Um, the way a lot of the mythology stuff does, it it like I literally there have been at least three storylines where Mulder got this alien virus and they had to get a vaccine from it, but oh, where are they gonna the get Deuce the Ex Machina from? vaccine? Yeah. Yeah. It, <laughs> the vaccine happened. to end all vaccines. Like, <laughs> like literally at some point. He, no boosters necessary. His brain becomes the vaccine and then later he needs a vaccine again. It gets repetitive. Yeah. Um, so, so, so that's where I think there's a, the, the tension between the, the tension. There's, there is tension between the intention, like the tone, the kind of serious, um, espionage tone that the movie's yeah. going for and how like pulpy and ridiculous a lot yeah, of it like, is. I mean, well, ultimately, it's kind of, there's like, know. it's kind of the thing meets alien. But, um, but also not like, I yeah. want them to lean into those things a little bit more. Like there is a straight up murderous alien creature that you think they're going to have to deal with. One scene. Kind of, one scene of like a murderous alien definitely could have used more of that and it's a cool scene Mm -hmm. but that that's part of i think the problem with x-files as a, a thing is it's so dedicated to mystery like you said with scully how could she still have doubts after this point well the whole point of the show is sowing seed for that doubt whereas the best episodes The best parts of this movie are when it leans into those genre conventions and just gets a little dumb and pulpy. Yeah, I mean, I actually think it does the espionage stuff okay, too. Even when there's no, you know, aliens attacking people or whatever. Or like when they go to to check on the the site in Austin and they just laid down a fresh um, playground on it. Um, because but if you're going to tease a alien creature feature, have that pay off a little bit more. Sure. You know what I mean? I, I mean, I think that the movie, the movie might have been, might have benefited a little bit from leaving Mulder and Scully's perspective a little bit and maybe yeah. having a second, like a B plot that sort of helps brew the tension before they're involved with it. Um, Just something so that we're not just kind of like following breadcrumbs for two hours. Well, imagine doing it for eight seasons. (laughs) I mean, Uh, I've enjoyed some of the episodes I've seen. Well, and and, I mean, here's the thing. I obviously like it. Otherwise, I wouldn't stick with it for eight seasons. Yeah. It's just these are these frustrating things to me. And I feel like this is the kind of property that maybe they could reboot with a whole new cast now. But lean into the genre stuff a little bit more. Because those They are did. They called the it supernatural. Stuff. Yeah. Or Roswell or like I mean they've they've there is definitely the children of X Files that have come out since then. I Even mean, Lost sure. to a certain extent took stuff for from X Files. Sure. And and I think it has some of the same problems that Lost had. Yeah. Uh this idea you know, the the puzzle box at some point. You got to put the picture together. And what better opportunity than a movie, you know, have this payoff big and then for season six, let's move on to a new mystery or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, 
so it's it to me it's it isn't entertaining enough, but it's also kind of a puzzling uh, piece of pop culture to me because I I feel like X Files spins its wheels in the mud a lot. Yeah, I think it kind of it, it. I think it's a product of its time. If you like this type of stuff, like if you like Patriot Games type of like Tom Clancy thing more than you like sci-fi, but you might be able to kind of ride with this. Um, but if you are expecting like big spaceships and aliens and stuff and like every other scene, then you're not going to get that. Those things do happen. Um, but ultimately, I thought it's like it's fine. It's neither great or banging. You know what is yeah. you know what is banging though? Hmm. The soundtrack to the X Files movie. Yeah. Hell yeah. That was back in <laughs> when like literally every movie had to have the best soundtrack ever. Yes. Uh, so it has a yes. I don't know if you follow uh Eric Peacock on uh on Twitter. He's he's Twitter famous. Um he mm-hmm. goes by Yule Bollocks. But he does. He just started a a new podcast all about soundtracks from this era called Soundtracker, and I highly suggest it. Um, okay. It's a very, it's a really entertaining one. Um, but and I'm sure they'll get to this at some point because this is exactly the bread and butter for that st- that podcast. But we have Filter, Tonic, Foo Fighters, Ween, The Cardigans, Better Than Ezra, Bjork, X. Yeah. Noel Gallagher and Sarah McLaughlin. <laughs> None of that uh, music yeah. appears in the film ever. No, I think it could have benefited. I, <laughs> I think X Files could always benefit from being a little cooler. Yes, I think that um, that is something about the property. Whether you're talking about the TV show or the movies, just, yeah, all of it. And that's what I mean. None like- of it really registers as cool anymore. It was very cool in the '90s, and you were on. You were like, you know, on the up and up. You were on the on the shit if you were watching X Files in the '90s. But now I feel like it is seen as supremely boomer. Well, I. I think that kind of goes back to like the the CIS aspects of it. I think shine a lot more now that we're you know we've come so far in narrative television from the twenty four episode every every episode has to have a you know different procedural element to it. Yeah. Uh, then X Files. I mean, it definitely you know helped pave the way, but. I do think a lot of shows have surpassed it as far as like narrative television goes. Ooh. Um, yeah. Uh, standing on the shoulders of giants for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Let, I think let's get a new X-Files movie with totally new cast. Let's give it the Mission Impossible treatment at this point. Let's get Bad Robot in there. I don't know have if that's... Tom Cruise running through Thailand chasing an alien. I don't think that's necessarily what I want. I think X-Files is perfectly fine where it is in in uh, the collective conscience. Nah, man. Give it to me. Give it to me as a property. I will make it a multi-billion dollar IP again. Well, I'm sure somebody's actively working on that, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to come up with something good. Just Not that I don't love David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson. They're great. 
I mean, if anything later seasons prove, the show lives and dies on their chemistry. Yeah, when I say the movie, uh, when I say that the X-Files isn't cool anymore, I'm not, I don't mean that in, in, a, in a derisive way. I mean that it's, there's nothing about it that's rock and roll. There's nothing about it that's new or fresh or relevant. But at the time, it was the shit. Yeah. Um, it's actually, it's weird to me that more people, you like younger people or whatever, going back and watching, um, Twin Peaks, which I think dates a lot harder than the X-Files. I got it. Yes and no. Uh, I mean, here's, okay. Who Twin Peaks is not afraid of high strangeness. And I, I think that's something that. Uh, still draws people and soap opera camp and that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. All right. Cool. Well, what is uh, I, I'm asking myself the movie that we are going to be watching on the first episode of October. Um, this was basically a, a basically a horror episode. I mean, if we're being real, but um, yeah. the uh, the streaming homework for next episode is going to be the movie Frankenhooker. Uh, a horror comedy directed by uh, uh, Frank Hennenlauter, the same guy who also did Basket Case and B- Brain Damage and a bunch of other um, kind of schlocky uh, horror comedies. Um, so we're going to be talking about that. It is available to watch on Shudder. Yeah, if anybody has anything to say about any of the many topics we discussed on this episode, you can reach out to us on our email. Uh mcguffinpod at gmail.com you can also find us on on um, Instagram and Twitter at mcguffinpod we're on Facebook at facebook.com slash mcguffinpod um, you can find me individually on Twitter and, and Instagram under VC Cassidy you can find the reviews I write for the Idaho State Journal by googling Idaho State Journal movies and that'll take you to the review archives um, and you can leave us a five-star uh, rating and a one-sentence review over at iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Player.fm, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, and uh, Spotify. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Keith Foster Kid. Follow along uh, with my X-Files journey. I'm so close. I've only got two, two three seasons and a movie left to go. Uh, hashtag X-Files Watch. Hashtag Fight the Future. You can also follow my art account at Sticky Note Aesthetic on Instagram. Yes, and that is the episode. Candyman. 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 Okay, I'm done. I can't, I can't do it! I can't do it! <laughs> All right. Bye.